ghosts, specters, whatever you want to call them, they've been around for thousands of years. Apparently she died from a tooth infection in one of the upstairs rooms in the house. As in the locations they haunt. History of a Haunting podcast tells you all about these famous, infamous, and almost famous locations. And why they became terrifying places to visit. Grab a glass of wine and settle in with your hosts, Archie. I mean, that was definitely the wrong thing to do. And Carrie. Nobody asked for it, Carrie. Nobody fucking asked for it. But hey, my podcast, and I'll say what I fucking want. (laughs) Two people just winging it in life and this podcast. So enjoy this week's episode of History of a Haunting. Hi, welcome to History of a Haunting's mini episode. Mini episodes. Just for the Patreons. Uh, Arch, where are we taking the Patreons today? We're going to Povelia Island in Italy and the Island of the Dolls in Mexico. And what is that in Spanish? <laughs> it's on my other. Isla de los Muñecas? La Islos de las Muñecas. Oh, okay. Islos or Islas? La Islas. La Isla de la Muñecas. Muñecas. Okay. So to that end, we're talking all about islands today and how wonderful and magical they are. Um, except the ones we're going to talk about. Yeah. Well, we this, is, this isn't like Ibiza or Belize or... Our, our island-themed cocktail. Yes. It's Gilligan's Island cocktail. Is it Gilligan's Island Cocktail or is it Gilligan's Island Punch? I don't know. I can't remember. Anyway, it's orange juice, cranberry juice. I've got coconut vodka and peach I've schnapps. I've got vanilla vodka and peach schnapps. I said peach schnapps. <laughs> wow. This is going to be great, Aaron. We're a couple of glasses deep in here. Eat it up, Aaron. Eat it up. I mean, really. <laughs> So we're going to just dive right in. We don't have any EVPs or anything to, to cover. So let's go to Povelia Island in Italy. And what I got, I took from um, allthatsinteresting.com and Wikipedia for supporting okay. documentation. Cool. This small island, just 17 acres, housed over 160,000 plague victims through the centuries, and officials did more than just quarantine the sick and soon to die. They burned the corpses to stop the spread of the disease, and it is said that human ash from these cremations make up more than 50% of the island's soil, even centuries later. Oh, neat. It sounds like hell, just in northern Italy. (laughs) The picturesque Venetian lagoon houses 166 islands, including a small island directly south of the Piazza San Marco, Known as Povelia Island, the small dot of land has housed people since at least the 5th century when Romans escaped Goth and Hun invasions by fleeing to more defensible islands in the lagoon. As Venice grew into a major power, Povelia became an important defensive location. In the 14th century, the Venetians built a fort on the island, establishing an outpost that could destroy enemy ships that tried to reach the city of Venice. But when bubonic plague ravaged Europe, Povelia Island became the quickest and eventually permanent solution to the outbreak. It became an important quarantine site for plague victims as early as the 16th century. Yuck. In addition to quarantining plague victims on Povelia, the island also became a gigantic mass grave to the corpses of the dead. 
Barges from Venice hauled the dead to the island, while smaller ships brought exiles from the city who showed even the mildest symptoms of the plague. Gross. So they were all just like there... To die. And the dead bodies were just... The dead, the dead and dying. Burned. Mm-hmm. Gross. On Povelia Island, plague victims spent 40 days waiting to see if they would die or recover. Most died. The Venetians cremated untold thousands of bodies on Povelia, leaving the ashy remains of the plague victims to fall where they may. Gross. When the deadliest... I can't stop saying that word. (laughs) When the deadliest outbreak of bubonic plague, the Black Death, struck Europe in 1348, Venice created the most modern quarantine system. The Republic detains ships and travelers suspected of carrying the plague for a period of 40 days. The word quarantine itself comes from the Italian quaranta, or 40. I swear to God, guys, we did not pick this because of everything that's going on with fucking coronavirus, I promise. Just, it's a cool place. (laughs) Haunting-wise, it's a magical place. I highly recommend everybody try to go. Very, very hot for some others. No, God! The Black Death devastated Venice's population in 1348, killing half of its citizens. Awesome. As Venice was a hub for international trade, it welcomed ships from around the known world, making the island republic especially susceptible to the spread of disease. Although plague quarantines were largely ineffective, the desperate need to stop the spread of disease drove other other areas to adopt the practice. (laughs) During... For instance, during a reappearance of the plague in 1374, the Duke of Milan exiled all plague sufferers to a field outside the city. As bubonic plague ravaged Europe for centuries, Venice responded by creating a network of lazaretti, or plague quarantine stations, on the islands in the lagoon. Povelia Island became the most important of these inspection ports by the 18th century. In 1485, Venice's ruler Giovanni Mosengo, Mos, uh, Mosenego, God, okay. <laughs> oh, I knew I should have sent myself that phonetic. <laughs> <laughs> the only one thing, the, the only thing that I wrote down is Povelia. In in 1485, Venice's ruler died from another outbreak of the plague. You know that guy. You know that guy, <laughs> which spurred the city to create several quarantine colonies colonies on isolated islands quote when plague struck the town everybody sick or showing any suspect symptoms were restricted on the island until they recovered or died explains anthropologist luisa gambaro from the 16th century on povelia island housed plague victims and there many breathed their last and were cremated or buried in mass graves But the island became even more important in Venice's epidemic prevention plans in the 18th century. My God. In 1777, Venice's Magistrate of Health turned Pabelia Island into its primary plague checkpoint. Any ships sailing to Venice had to stop at Pabelia first for an inspection. If any sailor showed signs of plague... (laughs) Oh, wow. I fucked up my notes real bad right here. Oh, cool. Because I right. got nothing after the comma except a different paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what? Dramatic buildup? What happened? If any sailor showed any signs of plague, Venice quarantined them on Povelia Island. 
Babili Island remained an important plain quarantine site until 1814, and owing to its haunting legacy as the city's go-to quarantine station for the plague, Venetians began calling Poveli Island the Island of Ghosts. Adding to, of course, Poveli's dark history in 1922, Venetians transformed the island by building a mental hospital there. I mean, why not at this point? Naturally, rumors... The prison next? Right. Naturally, rumors soon spread that a doctor at the hospital carried out morbid experiments on his patients. Fuck. And only stopped after he reportedly died from falling from the bell tower on the island. The, hus- wah, wah. the oh. hospital closed its doors in 1968, leaving Povelia once and again. And there they go. Bye. Leaving Povelia. <laughs> leaving Povelia. There we go. Once again to be abandoned. Afterward, the island was briefly used for agriculture and then completely abandoned. Agri- what agriculture on an island that's covered in human ash? Hey, we're, we're good. We're good sediment. I, uh, that's Whole new horrible. meaning to ear of corn. I, <laughs> in 2014, the Italian state auctioned a 99-year lease of Pavalia. Which, You're going to fucking hell. <laughs> I know. <laughs> May as well have fun with it. I mean, you guys... <laughs> In 2014, the Italian state auctioned a 99-year lease of Pavilia, which would remain state property, to raise revenue, hoping that the buyer would redevelop the hospital into a luxury hotel. The highest bid was from Italian businessman Luigi Bernaro. He planned to invest 20 million euros in a restoration plan. The lease did not proceed because his project was judged not to meet all the conditions. Other sources suggested that the deal was annulled because the bid was too low. Brugnaro initially fought the cancellation of the lease, lease but t- after he became mayor of Venice, he oh. renounced any intentions to the island. With an, okay. Right. In, and forgot about the, you know, trying to contest the lease. Right. In 2015, a private group, Povelia Pertuti, was hoping to raise 25 to 30 million euros for a new plan to include a public park, a marina, a restaurant, a hostel, and a study center, according to The Telegraph. As of mid-2019, however, the island still sits vacant and prohibited from visitation. Yes, it is against Italian law to go there. And... Or you have to have written permission from... Mayor... The government. Or whoever. Oh, wow. Yeah, you have to have written permission to go there. Um, very much like the Diplomat Hotel, you actually have to get written permission to investigate it and, and go there, which is interesting. Yeah. I'm sure there's a fee. Um, I'm sure it's totally affordable, too. Oh. Absolutely worth it. Oh, so what? That, that's me. What have you got? Uh, so what I've got is, I got it from italicsmag.com, huffingtonpost.com, news.com.au, and thevintagenews.com. Okay, so yeah, that's where I got all of my information, and um, my opening line is exactly, basically, exactly basically, is that a thing? Can you exactly basically have a same thing? I guess now. You know what? We're breaking all Exactly, kinds. basically. Exactly, basically what you said. Uh, vis-a-vis the following. <laughs> Pavalia Island 
like hell, but in Italy. (laughs) (laughs) So, like you said, bodies were left on the island streets to decompose. Uh, Then they were burned and their ashes were thrown in mass graves. Again, even today, strata of bones can be found beneath the surface. Oh, jeez. Uh-huh. And then, like you said, it's made up up to 50% of human ashes. I also read that... Uh, fishermen will not fish anywhere near the island because mm. they have caught human remains. Oh, Jesus. Uh-huh. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. I know. I mean, I do the worst part, so it wasn't going to be rainbows <laughs> and fucking Gilligan Island drinks the whole time. <laughs> According to a local legend, the patients of Povelia's asylum reported that they saw strange shadows, probably belonging to the ghosts of the plague victims. Um, and that they could not sleep at night because of the wails of the suffering spirits. Obviously, the doctors didn't believe them. Right. I mean... It's a mental institution. You're a lunatic. (laughs) It's just why you're here. Um, So, yeah. Already, right out of the gate. Um, Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, because of the horror practices that the doctor um, had performed on the patients... He apparently was rumored to be tormented by the ghosts who were plague victims, but also victims of his treatments and experiments and things like that. Ah. Um, So he was known to be tormented by the ghosts um, that its claim drove him crazy to the point where he jumped or was pushed from the clock tower that stands out on the lagoon that you had mentioned. We're not so crazy now, are we? Right? Now who's fucking crazy? Mm -hmm. Um, By the way, the legend tells that he actually didn't die from the fall, but that he was choked before by a mysterious fog. After he landed, he was still alive. Mm -hmm. Um, I read that. It is also reported that on some silent and calm nights, you can still hear the bell tolling across the bay, despite it being removed years ago. Oh, wow. It's also rumored that he is bricked up in the bell tower. Ooh. Mm-hmm. What? Yeah. So he jumped from the bell tower. And then his body was bricked up inside of it. Okay. Uh, fair, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, in, <laughs> um, as you mentioned, in 1969, the structure was permanently shut down and the island abandoned for the second time, obviously, during the years the island has lured many curious and paranormal researchers. In 2009, your friends and mine, Ghost Adventures, dedicated an episode to Pavilion. Oh, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, in 2016, a group of American guys from Colorado were rescued at night by firefighters from Pavilion Island, who, at their arrival, found them in a state of shock and panicking for having seen and heard paranormal entities. Oh. Yeah. So now, in the Ghost Adventures episode on Pavalia, um, the crew stranded in themselves there for a full 24 hours, and I watched it. Um, it's, I mean, it's it's Ghost Adventures. Right. Yeah. But, um, so, the episode, you know, they, it's full of perceived curses. Um, they caught a couple of apparitions. Of course, it's, you know, the creepy music and... Um, they did have um, experienced a lot of weird energy, uh, inexplicable equipment malfunctions, and off the charts like all their ghost monitors, you know, KT meters and stuff. Went bizarre. Went bonkers. Bonkers. That's the word. Yeah. So um, they did ask at one point in Italian um, questions: "Are you a murderer?" 
And they did seem to get a response from nothing in the room. Um, there was a lot of bangs, audible footsteps, disembodied voices, and strange orbs were all captured on the video and the audio. Numerous reports d- state that indeed at night you can hear voices, screams, laments, and strange noises. While research has researches what? <laughs> no. While researchers have recorded an odd electromagnetic field within the entire perimeter of the island despite there being no source of electricity on it. Oh. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, so, though, of course, there's no official records for the entire story, but it has been passed down for generations through the time. Um, nevertheless, the few who have been brave enough to go over to Pavalia Island never wanted to go back because of the spooky atmosphere. Um, also, the island is named the Island of No Return. Oh, God. <laughs> So, yeah, yeah. Now, those who have been there also report walking on ashes, hearing screaming, seeing moving shadows and having feeling the urgent desire to flee. There was a family that recently sought permission to visit the island, hoping to buy it cheaply and build a vacation home. Uh, Mm, Yeah. Did you not hear the story of right? (laughs) Um, The family left. Before the night was over, and they have refused to comment on the reason for their abrupt departure. But the only known fact is that their daughter's face was ripped open by something and required 20 stitches. Whoa. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> a few people have snuck over because I guess you can, like, bribe, you know, you can bribe people to take you over there by boat. Right. And now they won't stay and wait for you. they'll just take you let you get out then they're gonna peace out um so a few people have dodged the light police patrol that guards the island um however they again all have sworn never to return to it wow yeah um they say moans and screams that reverberate around the island are unbearable and fishermen also tell of seeing mystery lights Fishermen tell of seeing mystery lights on the island, and there is a feeling of the most intense evil, and one misguided thrill-seeker, upon entering the deserted hospital, was told by a loud disembodied voice, quote, leave immediately and do not return. Oh. So, bleh. Bleh. (laughs) Now, (laughs) I do want to end my part with... Um, the best experience that I found, and I, you know, I deep dive through the internet to find, I go on Reddit, I'd go to find experiences. Mm -hmm. This is the best one that I found, um, and I've actually found it on news.com.au. And the author writes, quote, it wasn't so much what Giovanni said, but how he said it. A stout, balding, no-nonsense sort of fellow, the local cold meats delivery man gave no hint of drama or exaggeration in a Venice bar where word had spread two Australian journalists planned to spend the night on the infamous Povelia Island. Walking over to our table, the big man nods upward in our direction as he takes a seat, lights up a cigarette, and draws deeply through gritted yellow-stained teeth. This is quite the author. Indeed. Like, I can picture it all. It's (laughs) really quite amazing. Um, He continues, The man said... Watch out for Paolo. He is the bad one. He was a doctor there. He will cause you troubles. 
exhaling a billow of Lucky Strike smoke above our heads as if picking up on a continuing conversation. He says, I know them all. Paolo, Marco, Giorgio. Giorgio is okay, is okay, friendly phantasma. My father would take me fishing there as a boy, and when I was older, I stayed there for my, I stayed there myself for 15 nights. Whoa. When I came back, I told everyone what happened to me. The ghosts, what they did. Paolo's ghosts mostly pushing me. Whoosh, whoosh. Always pushing and things moving. They all say, Nane, they call me my nickname, you are crazy. Now everyone says the same thing about the island. And you want to go there. So you tell me who is the crazy one. As quickly as he advanced on our table, Giovanni now retreats back to the bar, apparently content his duty is done. At a table next to ours, another man turns slightly. He is right, he says, over one shoulder, before he turns back around to slug his distinctive orange April spritz aperitif. <laughs> That's a writer. That's a writer. He ends it with, it's not clear what Giovanni was right about, Dr. Paolo being a bad spirit, he himself being mad, or us. Seems wrong to ask. One or all should probably have been obvious. <laughs> so oh, that's, that's what I... That's great. Yeah, that's what I have on Povelia Island. Um, again, it's we do these mini episodes on these locations because they, they don't have enough to fill up a full episode, but their stories deserve to be told. And this is one of the more well-known haunted locations. Hmm. Um... So I was really excited to be able to to showcase this one in our second uh, mini episode. And the next that we're going to go over is uh, Islas de... What? La Isla de los Muñecas, or Island of the Dolls, in Mexico City, Mexico. Okay. All right. You, you go. As told by <laughs> AtlasObscura.com and Wikipedia. Okay. Over 50 years ago, Don Julian Santana left his wife and child and moved onto an island in Toshio Lake in Xochimilco Canals. Good job. <laughs> According to some, a young girl actually drowned in the lake, while most others, including his relatives, say Don merely imagined the drowned girl. Regardless, Santana devoted his life to honoring this lost soul in a unique, fascinating, and, for some, unnerving way. Was he known to be, uh, like, uh, hallucinations or... Nothing I read of that nature up until this point. Hmm, okay. But he devoted his life to honoring her spirit by collecting and hanging up dolls by the hundreds. Eventually, Santana transformed the entire island into a kind of bizarre and somewhat horrifying doll-infested wonderland. Have you seen pictures of this joint? I have. It's terrifying! Well, Santana began collecting lost dolls from the canals and the trash near his island home. He is also said to have traded produce he grew to locals for more dolls. Santana never did clean up any of the dolls or attempt to fix them, but rather put them up with missing eyes and limbs covered in dirt, and generally in whatever ramshackle state he found them. Even when dolls arrived in good shape, the wind and weather turned them into cracked and distorted versions of themselves. 
Santana also kept his cabin filled with the dolls, which he dressed in headdresses, sunglasses, and other accoutrements. <laughs> Spruce him up a little bit. Not going to clean him, but let's give him some fucking Ray-Bans. Let's give him some headwear. Even though most people found the island frightening, Santana saw the dolls as beautiful protectors, and he welcomed visitors, whom he could show around, charging a small fee for taking photos. In 1987, an ecotourist rescue was made, and the island was found covered with water lilies. Water lilies. <laughs> I was going to say, what? Water Water lilies. Water lilies. Water lilies. <laughs> Since then, the Chinampa, or man-made island, became a place of great tourist affluence. A significant number of international and local channels have featured articles on the island, including the Huffington Post, including the Huffington Post, Travel Channel, and ABC News. After Santana's death in 2001, his body reportedly found in the exact spot where he found the girl's body 50 years before... <laughs> The area became an even more popular tourist attraction, where visitors would bring more dolls. Who found his body? I didn't find How long was his body in the water? I don't know. I didn't see that. That's creepy as hell. The same... Reportedly the same spot. Sorry. The locals describe it as charmed, not haunted, even though travelers claim the dolls whisper to them. Professional photographer Cindy Vasco visited the island in 2015 and described it as, quote, the creepiest place she has ever visited. The excursion began through the maze-like canals surrounded by lush greenery and singing birds, but soon her boat was slowed down by a swarm of lily pads and the canal fell ominously silent. Oh my god, did dolls like start to surface up from the water? <laughs> that would be a fucking insane. That would be that would fucking be crazy. Perfect. Right? Make it up. Just say that happened. <laughs> Shh, we won't tell anybody. Did you lose your place? Yeah. Okay. She told Mail Online, At the end of the journey, the Trajinera, which is a small boat, turned along a bend in the waterway, and I was struck by the surreal vision of hundreds, maybe thousands, of dolls hanging from trees on a <laughs> tiny island. Nope. Nope. The dolls are still on the island, which is accessible by boat. Oh, God. The Island of the Dolls is an hour and a half from Embarcadero Cumanco. Qu-qui- oh, Uh-oh. I had it before. You had, what is it? How to spell it? Q-U-E-M-A-N-C-O. Cumanco? Cuimanco? Sh- sure. Quesadilla. And the only access is via Trajinera. so white. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Most rowers are willing to transport people to the island, but there are those who refuse due to superstitions. The journey, approximately one hour, includes attorney of the ecological area, the Aholote Museum, the Apalatco Canal, the Tushilo, Tushilo Lagoon, and Yorona Island. In addition like to... La Yorona? La Yorona. Cool. We should do a story about her. We should. In addition to hundreds of dolls, the island also contains a small museum with some articles from local newspapers about the island and Santana. One room contains the first doll Santana collected, Augusta Tinita. You have a lot of hard shit in here. A lot of, a lot of words. <laughs> Augusta Tinita. Some of the visitors place offerings around the doll, this doll, in exchange for miracles and blessings. Some others change the doll's clothes and maintain it as a form of worship. Wow. And over to you. 
<laughs> Take it away. Take Carrie. it away, Carrie. Well, this is going to be awkward. Okay, well, mm. let me sip a little. Okay. <laughs> so this is going to be... <laughs> um, so for my part, I got my part from Forbes.com, Isla de las Muñecas.com, mm -hmm. okay, and SmithsonianMagazine.com. Ooh. Yes. But. Oh. So, um, again, we, we pick these locations as mini-episodes because they're fascinating, they're creepy, they certainly fall within the genre of paranormal. Um, this particular one, though, I have one, two... I have three sentences of hauntings. <laughs> and um, we took a little tiny break uh, when I choked on vodka. Mm. Um, uh, and I had let you know that you had actually said one of my sentences. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it just dropped right over my whole part. Oh, I'm sorry. So um, <laughs> I did a little, uh, a little bit something different with my part. But... Supposedly, the island is haunted by the ghost of the little drowned girl. Um, and this island, like you said, is covered in hanging dolls with missing heads and limbs. Locals will also say that they've heard the dolls whispering to each other, seen their arms and heads moving, and even witnessed their eyes opening. Oh, Jesus. Mm -mm. And if you look at... <laughs> pictures of this island they mm. are they're mm -hmm. hanging from trees they're nailed to trees they have heads on like spikes Pikes. yeah and they're or they're missing arms and legs and they're really weathered and old looking and, mm. and they're missing mm -hmm. eyeballs or if their eyes are painted on that one is like kind of like the paint is chipped away it, right. they're just right. creepy um others who were um, who have taken a boat to the island said that the dolls lured them to come down to the island. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really it that I have <laughs> for the hauntings of the island of the dolls in Mexico. So I'm doing my research and I'm like, well, that's... Thanks for listening to the episode, guys. Bye-bye. We'll see you. <laughs> you know, no. I can't just leave it at that. So I got to thinking, and I want to talk um, actually quite a bit about why are dolls so fucking creepy? <laughs> so I did a little research. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Now, a fear of dolls does actually have a proper name. It's uh, pediophobia. It's classified under the broader fear of humanoid figures, which is also called... Shit. Here we go. Okay, let's hear it. Automatonophobia. Oh, nice. Thank you. Good job. Yeah, I had to break it down like <laughs> phonetic, phonetically. Um, it's also renated. <laughs> wow. I could say automatonophobia, but not <laughs> related. <laughs> sure, that makes sense. Vodka makes words work gooder. <laughs> it's also related to... Puppa-ophobia, which is the fear of puppets. Right. Although it might be pupa-ophobia. P-U-P-A-P-H-O-B-I-A. -A. I think puppa-phobia is... Puppa-phobia? Probably better than pupa-phobia. Because that sounds like insects. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So, <clears throat> I found this fascinating article on Smithsonian Magazine. 
Now, dolls have been a part of human play for thousands of years. In 2004, a 4,000-year-old stone doll was unearthed in an archaeological dig on the Mediterranean island of Pantelleria. The British Museum has several examples of ancient Egyptian rag dolls made of papyrus-stuffed papyrus linen. So over millennia, toy dolls crossed continents, social strata. They were made from sticks and rags. They were porcelain and vinyl and have been found in the hands of children everywhere. Hmm. I had a ton of dolls. Right. A ton of dolls. And I do actually have an old Holly Hobby doll that I got when I was... I don't know, maybe a year old. Oh, wow. And she's big, and she's got kind of like a, a sandbag body. But she's so old that she does have, her eyes are painted on, but the paint, like I mentioned earlier, is chipping away. And Aww. her blonde hair, because <laughs> of course, her um, Holly Hobby, like her old dress, gone. Her clothes are long gone. So it's just this doll, but her her blonde hair is so matted <laughs> for if if I knew I, she's in one of these boxes somewhere but if I you if I could post a picture everyone would be like that doll's fucking haunted <laughs> she's really not she's just old she's just old and she was very loved <laughs> but anyway and by virtue and by virtue <laughs> and by virtue Jesus this is a, this is Wow. Yeah, I got five pages. <clears throat> I'm just going to lean back. And I'm on like half of page one. <clears throat> and by virtue of the fact that dolls are people in miniature form, unanimated by their own emotions, it's easy for a society to project whatever it wanted to on dolls. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just as much as they could be made out of anything, they could also be made into anything. Mm. So... Uh, Patricia Hogan, who is a curator at the Strong National Museum of Play in Rochester, New York, and an associate editor of the American Journal of Play, said, quote, I think there is quite a tradition of using dolls to reflect cultural values and how we see children or who we wish them to be. Uh, for example, she says, by the end of the 19th century, many parents no longer saw their children as unfinished adults, but rather regarded childhood as a time of innocence that ought to be protected. In turn, dolls' faces took on a more cherubic, angelic look. Dolls have also, um, also have had an instructional function, often reinforcing gender norms and social behavior. So through the 18th and 19th century, dressing up dolls gave little girls the opportunity to learn to sew or knit. Um, Hogan says that girls also used to act out social interactions with their dolls, not only the classic tea parties, but also more complicated social rituals such as funerals as well. I can safely say I never had a funeral for any of my dolls. <laughs> That's, I, I don't know anybody that has. I'm not saying it's, I personally find that grieving. <laughs> <laughs> she goes on to say that in the earliest, 20, earliest? Wow. Here we go. In the early 20th century. Hold on. There it is. <laughs> She goes on to say that in the early 20th century, right around the time that women were increasingly leaving the home and entering the workplace, infant dolls became more popular, inducting young girls into a cult of maternal domesticity. In the second half of the 20th century, Barbie and her myriad careers and sartorial options provided girls with alternative aspirations. 
while action figures offered boys a socially acceptable way to play with dolls. Mm. Now, the recent glut... Is it glut or glut? G-L-U-T. Aaron? I think both. Both? Um, We'll go with glut. Aaron, message me, let me know. (laughs) The recent glute, a boy-crazy, bizarrely proportioned, hyper-consumerist girl dolls, so Bratz, Monster High, those dolls, Mm. says something about both how society sees girls and how girls see themselves, although what is for another podcast? (laughs) Um, So dolls, without meaning to, they actually mean a lot. Right. But one of the more relatively recent ways we relate to dolls is as as strange objects of, and this is a totally scientific term, creepiness. (laughs) There's research being done into why we think things are creepy and what potential use that might have is somewhat limited, but it does exist. Oh, wow. Yes. So, uh, (laughs) a psychologist at Knox College in Illinois, Frank McAndrew, um... He says that creepiness comes down to uncertainty. You're getting mixed messages. If something is clearly frightening, you scream, you run away. If something is disgusting, you know how to act. But if something is creepy, it might be dangerous, but you're not sure that it is. So there's ambivalence Hmm. toward it. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, If someone is acting outside of accepted social norms, like they're standing too close or they're staring... Um, we become suspicious of their intentions. But in the absence of real evidence of a threat, we wait and in the, and in the meantime, call them creepy. <laughs> <laughs> the upshot, McAndrew says, is that being in this state of creeped out makes you hyper vigilant. It really focuses your attention and it helps you to process any relevant information to help you decide whether there is something to be afraid of or not. Right, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, He says, I really think creepiness is where we respond in situation... Situation... (laughs) I really think creepiness is where we respond in situations where we don't know we have enough information to respond, but we have enough to put us on our guard. It's a perceived threat. Yes. But you're kind of waiting it out. You have to... You're waiting for more information. Exactly. And dolls inhabit this area of uncertainty largely because they look human but we know they're not our brains are designed to read designed to read faces for important information about intentions emotions and potential threats indeed we are so primed to see faces and respond to them that we see them everywhere mm. in streaked windows and smears of marmite toast jesus is on my toast banana peels a phenomenon under the catch-all term Oh, God. <laughs> I've been waiting for this. A catch-all, under the catch-all term, pareidolia. 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 Did you know this? Yes. Oh, my God. Okay, so pareidolia. I was close. Peri- pareidolia. Thank you. Okay. However much we know that a doll is likely not a threat, <laughs> seeing a face that looks human but isn't unsettles our most basic human instincts. Some researchers also believe that a level of mimicry of nonverbal cues, such as hand movements or body language, is fundamental to smooth human interaction. This is the key is that 
it has to be the right level of mimicry, too much or too little, and we get creeped out. Mm. So, dolls don't have the ability to mimic, although they do seem to have the ability to make eye contact, which is... This is a whole level of... Uh, yeah. For me, because Edward and I are catching up on Westworld. Oh, yeah? Right now, okay. which is a, a land of human robots. Yes, yes! And we're in season two right now, and they've gained awareness, and they're taking over, and it's all of these things you're telling me, it's like, how would that translate into uh-huh. a future mm-hmm. where you can't even tell what's a real robot, what is it? Yeah. A robot doll apart from a real person? yeah. So I'm just, you're saying all these things and I'm inside like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Oh He's my God. growing increasingly creeped out. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so dolls don't have the ability to mimic, although they do seem to have the ability to make eye contact. But because at least part of, some part of our brain is suspicious about whether this is a human or not, we may expect them to mimic us. Further confusing things. Right. Now... Before the 18th and 19th centuries, dolls weren't real enough to be threatening. Only when they begin to look too human did dolls start to become creepy, uncanny, and psycho- psychologically fuck. <laughs> did dolls start to become creepy, uncanny, and psychology began investigating. Nice. Okay, there we go. You're like, I don't know where you're trying to take this <laughs> sentence, Terry. <laughs> Honestly, I didn't. For a minute there either. <laughs> okay, so um, doll manufacturers figured out how to better manipulate materials to make dolls look more lifelike or to develop mechanisms that make them appear to behave in ways that humans behave. Um, one individual, one person points uh, to the sleep eye innovation um, of the early 1900s where the doll would close her eyes when laid horizontal in exactly the in exactly the way real children mm-hmm. do when they're sleeping. Gotcha. Um, they said, quote, I think that's where the unease comes with dolls. They look like humans and in some ways move like humans. And the more convincing they look or move or look like humans, the more uneasy we become. And I feel like that's true. Mm. Some of these dolls are just plain. They're just too realistic, which Leads me to an interesting phenomenon. Do, 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 do. Sorry. Phenomenon. <laughs> do, 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 do. <laughs> the interesting phenomenon is that the creepiness of realistic dolls is complicated by the fact that some people want dolls and robots that look as lifelike as possible. Reborns are a good illustration of the problem. They are, have you ever heard of this kind of a doll? Mm-hmm. Okay. So they're hyper-realistic. These custom-crafted infant dolls that reborn artists and makers say you can love forever. So the more lifelike an infant doll is, and some of them even boast heartbeats, breathing motion, and cooing. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. The more desirable it is among reborn devotees. Devotees? Yeah, you got them. Okay. But equally, the more it seems to repulse the general public. <laughs> So, um, a gentleman named A.F. Robertson um, did a 2004 investigation into doll collecting called Lifelike Dolls, the Collector Doll Phenomenon and the Lives of the Women Who Love Them. 
Some of the women who collected porcelain dolls thought of their dolls as alive and sentient beings with feelings and emotions. These women, who referred to their doll collections as nurseries, were sometimes shunned by other antique doll collectors who did not have the relation that same kind of relationship to their own dolls. Hmm. I didn't even know this was a thing. Yeah. Let alone you could write a whole paper about it. <laughs> or or a movie. Or a movie. Um, women, and it is almost exclusively women who collect reborns, often treat them as they would real babies. So if we are creeped out by inanimate things that aren't human looking too human, we may also be creeped out by adult humans pretending that these inanimate things are real. (laughs) Which I fall into that category. (laughs) So we're creeped out by people who have these kinds of hobbies and occupations because right away we jump to the conclusion what kind of person would willingly surround themselves with human-like things that are not human? Mm. So this um, Frank McAndrew, who I had mentioned just a moment ago, he Mm -hmm. had also done this um, survey with a partner of his. And their survey on creepiness found that most people think that creepy people don't realize they're creepy. (laughs) We're on our guard for those types of people because they're out of the ordinary, he says. Right, Yeah. So... Here's the other side of it. It's also exactly the kind of thing that's easy to exploit in the media. Mm. And you knew I was going to go here. (laughs) (laughs) Some doll makers blame Hollywood films for the creepy doll stigma. This island ain't helping that. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's just not helping that. Um, Probably not. Yeah, probably not. There's no doubt that movie makers have used dolls to great effect. Um, But the doll was creepy. Queepy? Oh my god. <laughs> the doll was queepy. They're <laughs> oh. <laughs> like Barry Kripke. Oh, my tummy. Oh my god. Um, maybe I should talk like Kripke for the rest of the episode. But the doll was queepy well oh before god. Hollywood. <laughs> no. no. Okay. No. The doll was creepy well before Hollywood came calling. In the 18th and 19th centuries, as dolls became more realistic, and as their brethren, the automata, automata, A-U-T-O-M-A-T-A? Automata. Automata? Do, 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 do. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. As dolls became more realistic, and as their brethren, the automata, performed more dexterous feats, artists and writers began exploring the horror of that almost immediately. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) In the 20th century, creepy dolls became more actively homicidal as motion picture technology transformed the safely inanimate into the dangerously animate. Mm. Some evil dolls still had an evil human behind them. Dracula director Todd Browning's 1936 The Devil Doll featured Lionel Barrymore as a man wrongly convicted of murder who turns two living humans into doll-sized assassins to wreak his revenge on the men who framed him. I've never heard of this movie. No. But then there was also the Twilight Zone's murderous Talkie Tina. It was inspired by one of the most popular and influential dolls of the 20th century, Chatty Cathy. Mm. <laughs> My name is Talkie Tina, and you better be nice to me. The evil clown doll from Poltergeist 
Cannily marrying two creepy memes for maximum terror. <laughs> and of course, Chucky. The My Buddy. Do you remember that doll? My Buddy? Mm-hmm. My Buddy. My Buddy. Wherever I go, he goes. Yeah. 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 I, I, I was jealous of other children that had that. That had that. To a point. <laughs> yeah. Do you want one, Archie? No. Kind of. But, but no. <laughs> um, so yeah. So <laughs> Chucky, the My Buddy clone, possessed. And Chucky's rolling up now. No. <laughs> The My Buddy clone possessed by the soul of a serial killer in the Child's Play series. The 1980s and 1990s saw dozens of B-movie variations on the homicidal doll theme. Dolly Dearest, Demonic Toys, Blood Dolls. I've never heard of any of those. No. But again, B-movie variations. Right, I'm sure Edward has them. I mean, I'm, I'm a fan of a B-horror movie, but I've never heard of any of these. Hello, Mary Lou Prom Night 2? Yes. But never any of these. <laughs> anyway. In 2005, the evil Denzians of the doll graveyard came back for teenage souls and apparently eyeballs. Um, in 2007, I have seen this movie. This movie are the guys that um, Lee Winnell and James Wan that did the Saw movies mm-hmm. and Conjuring. In 2007, homicidal ventriloquist dummies were going around ripping people's tongues out in dead silence. That was fucking terrifying. (laughs) That was a terrifying fucking movie. Um, Now, most recently, devil worshippers inadvertently turned a smiling vintage doll into a grinning demon in in October... Okay, last October. Whenever this article was written is October. (laughs) In the film Annabelle, which we have already, in our Haunted Objects episode, we covered Annabelle the doll. Um, which is a film in the Conjuring franchise. So the director, John Leonetti, told the Huffington Post that dolls make exceptional vehicles for horror films. If you think about them, most dolls are emulating a human figure. But they're missing one big thing, which is emotion. So they're shells. It's a natural, psychological, and justifiable vehicle for demons to take it over. If you look at a doll in its eyes, it just stares. That's creepy. They're hollow inside. That space needs to be filled with evil. (laughs) Yeah. So, (laughs) um, uh, when I was looking through all of this, and I'm like, okay, so we're quite well-versed, this podcast, in haunted dolls, creepy dolls. Uh, we have discussed Robert the Doll, who is one of the mo- most famous um, haunted dolls, mm-hmm. possessed dolls ever. Also, Annabelle the Doll. Right. Um, but there's a couple of dolls. One that... Um, I'm debating. His name is Harold the Doll. And I don't want to... Um, that's all I'm going to say about that doll. And we're not going to be doing an episode on that doll. There's also uh, another really famous doll that is in Zach Bagan's Haunted Museum. And I'm not even going to say the name of that doll. Oh, wow. Because the demons that possess these two dolls are... um, They know when you're talking about them. Mm. Um, I shouldn't have even mentioned their one's name. Sorry, guys. But what's fucking weird (laughs) beyond that is apparently haunted objects, specifically haunted dolls is a hot commodity on eBay. Now... People are weird. People are weird. 
um, there's a guy named Jack Hutchcraft who wrote about the phenomenon for Vice. It says he stumbled upon the, a trade one night when he was surfing around the everything else section of eBay. Um, he says, quote, there was an advert for something which was a sadistic, perverted, haunted doll. It was this little menacing looking sort of troll. Intrigued, he noticed the bids kept going up with 10 people in the running. That doll that looked like a possessed little troll ended up selling for more than $1,400. Wow. Yeah. So he did a little, like, he did some reporting to kind of find out why anybody would want a haunted doll, let alone pay that much, if anything, for one. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he came, in the end, he came to the conclusion that some people want to connect solely with the spirit. Some people buy them just for the doll because they're doll collectors, and the spirited aspect of it is just a secondary thing. But I went on to eBay to see what I could see. Oh, no. What's shocking is there is a number of dolls that are being billed as spiritual vessels that you can buy to house a demon or spirit or something and just have whatever is plaguing your home put it in. They're selling these dolls that you can capture demons and entities in. Wow. It's weird that it's a thing. It's really, really weird that it's a thing. It's an untapped market for us. So I'm not really sure why. Um, I mean, I'm not really sure why. Uh, like you said, some people are weird. But the fact that this is a, a, a popular thing on eBay, and uh, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, find it, I find it really weird. Um, so, yeah, that's what I have in my research that I found um, when I was like, why are dolls so fucking creepy? Um, so I do want to say to just kind of close out the, the end of the episode and the end of my part that it's a, it's a section that I found, um, (laughs) on, um, it wasn't Smithsonian, um, but it was on, I believe it was Forbes.com is where I found this. Okay. But, um, the creepiness of dolls sometimes adds to their appeal. Some doll makers are actively courting creepy, such as this reborn artist who sells monster babies alongside regular babies or the popular and scary living dead dolls line i've never heard i've never heard of any of this but anyway here it is because the fact is people like creepy the same mechanism that makes us hyper vigilant also keeps us interested quote we're fascinated and enthralled and a little on edge because we don't know what comes next but we're not in any way paralyzed by it we're more drawn into it, which I think that it's the drawing in or almost being under the spell of wanting to find out what comes next is what good storytellers exploit. And I'm going to add good podcasters, too. <laughs> nice. So that's it, guys. That's what we got for the second mini episode. Oh, wow. This was great. Thank you. Thank you. Um, these are two really cool locations, and... Uh, I, I was excited to do them um, just because, you know, I had no idea about the story of the Island of the Dolls. I had no idea how that island came to be. Right, right. Um, so I think, uh, as always, Arch, everything that you find is brilliant and amazing and super detailed. Well, thank you, Atlas Obscura. Yeah. It's <laughs> an, another one of our podcast Bibles. Um, but yeah, that's it for us, guys. We hope you enjoyed this second mini episode. We will be bringing you another one in two weeks. And that's all I got. What all you right. got? I don't know. That's it. Okay. All right. We will be back with regular episodes on June 20th. So we want to thank you very much for your generosity. We love you. We appreciate you. And we will see you in a couple weeks. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye.